Hello and welcome to Biblical Breadcrumbs. In this episode, we'll be in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24, going through even the first story of chapter 17 down to about verse 8 there. Um, so into chapter 16, start of chapter 17. Last time we did talk about a couple stories from earlier in chapter 16, pretty well-known stories, the Great Confession, as we would call it, and um, I don't know how we would term the second one, verses 21 through 23, maybe the, uh, the, the small rejection? I'm not set on that title, but, but, um, that's a, I guess an option for it. You know, the Jesus going to a region, talking to his disciples, asking, hey, who do people think that I am? Who would people understand me as? And of course, his disciples say, oh, you're just kind of another human being to the crowds. You're one of the prophets in general. And Jesus says, yeah, but that's not good enough. Who do you think that I am? To which the disciples, and particularly Peter, responds, well, you're the son of God. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. And Jesus says, yeah, no, yeah, that's that's right. Thank you for showing that faith. But then immediately, of course, as, as the, at least as Matthew organizes it, Peter then turns and when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die and be raised, Jesus, uh, Peter says, no, that can't happen, right? Our, our perception of Messiah is different than that. That can't happen. That will never happen to you. And Jesus says, okay, okay, you, you were doing so well back there. You were doing really well when you were talking like I was thinking, when, when you were agreeing with God, but now you're going against this plan. And now you're saying, no, nothing's going to happen. Well, God's organizing this thing to happen, Peter. And so stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about your perception of Messiah and start thinking about what God cares about and what God's aiming for. And so with that in mind, then we pick up in verse 24. And let's just go ahead and read the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels, or sorry, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so we've got this section here where Jesus speaking directly to his disciples, right? Not just Peter, like he was talking to in verse 23. Um, but, but think about verse 23. Think about how Matthew's organizing this. Because, again, I don't think this is strictly in chronological order here. I don't think it's one, I don't think it's the great confession and then this story of Peter getting called Satan, and then this conversation, necessarily, at least not in the same day. But the way Matthew's organizing it, look at how it falls together. Because at the end of 23, Jesus says, you're a hindrance, you're not thinking about God, you're thinking about yourself. So in verse 24, stop thinking about yourself. If you want to follow me, if you want to follow the Son of God and, and be like God ultimately, then you have to stop thinking about yourself. You have to get rid of yourself. Deny yourself. But not only deny yourself, deny yourself up to the point where you're taking up a cross and agreeing to that responsibility 
and follow Jesus. Now, the understanding is when you take up a cross, you're not coming back from that. Taking up a cross is picking up your death sentence. And Jesus says, no, you willingly have to do this. You're volunteering into this. And so, go ahead, take up your cross. I'm going to later on. I'm going to in just a few chapters here. You pick it up, you follow me, and follow me to the death I'm going to. Because that's the way you're going to get life. If you want to keep your life, if you want to focus on your physical well-being, then fine. But that's not going to get you very far because ultimately you're going to lose the real life that there is. But if you lose that life, if you lose this life here, and you lose it to God's service, right? If you spend your time working for the Lord, then that's going to go pretty well for you because ultimately you're going to find life. You're going to get real life. Look, in, in verse 26, look, you can you could get all the stuff in the world and you still wouldn't have real life. You could spend you could get all of these resources and all of these possessions and all of this property. You can have all of that and still not have an actual life. What would you give to buy your life? Because all you have to do is give these, I don't know, 70 years of physical existence. And if you give that, you can have real life. But if you're intent on, on keeping that for yourself and on only using that in a selfish manner, if you're intent on living life to the fullest, as we say, um, and in, in enjoying all of the things here to the detriment of your spirituality, okay, you can do that, but that's not going to get you real life because God's coming. Verse 27, the Son of Man, even Jesus is coming, the Father and his angels and, and Jesus himself, and they're going to pay you back according to what you've done. And if all you've done is live in this self-centered manner, if all you've done is dedicate to yourself instead of to God, well, you're going to get judged like it. And so be careful how you live. Jesus, Jesus is, of course, the ultimate example of this. Um, he is the one who has life. He could have anything he wanted in life, and yet he uses his life to lose it to benefit others, and, and he uses it in the way God wants him to, which is willingly and voluntarily giving it up so that he can achieve something else. He willingly goes to death because he wants to achieve something greater than just living a few years here on earth. And so his call is not, and, and this is a common theme throughout the Bible, the call of God is not to do something that God would never do, right? Your boss at work might give you something to do because they don't want to do it, might tell you to, uh, to, to do whatever task because it's, it's the unpleasant one that nobody wants to deal with. God does all of that stuff too. He did all of that stuff first. He just asked us to be willing to give to him in the same way that he gave to us. And that's the requirement. Do we want to give or do we want to be selfish? That's the question. And then, of course, we get down to verse 28. And this is a really weird verse. 
right? Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And, of course, that links back with verse 27. Um, Jesus will reward, or the Father will reward each according to what he has done. So, some are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's, that's good. That's a blessing for them. Um, that would be their reward. But why is it here? And that's the question that I have, because uh, I have written in my notes for this, just verse 28. What? Because it's, it's really difficult to know what he's talking about, at least at first glance, at least for me. Um, he's talking to his disciples in verse 24. I'm guessing it's just the 12 and not others, though it could be others, I suppose. Um, but, but he's talking at least to his 12, and he's saying, hey, there are some people who, are just, who aren't going to die until they see me coming with my kingdom. Well, when we think about kingdom, that's obviously the church, right? And so the, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, when does Jesus come with the church? Well, I'd argue that that doesn't happen. I, I, maybe you could consider Acts 2 that. Um, and if you, if you do, I suppose this would be true. There are some standing here. Well, yeah, 11 of these 12 guys are going to see the church come. And so, okay, you could argue that. But I don't think that the Son of Man coming with the kingdom is a picture of the church because I don't see Jesus coming with that kingdom. I just see the kingdom being established. So maybe I'm misreading that, maybe I'm misinterpreting that, but I see something else in here. Um, the most normalized reading of this I would see as the, the second coming, right? Coming with the kingdom, the kingdom being authority, kingdom being the rule of God, not limited to the church, although the church is a manifestation of that. This is the Son of Man who's coming in his power at the end of time. But then, of course, that raises an issue. I, I don't believe that any of these 12 guys are still alive at this point, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So that, that makes that really difficult to understand if this is, in fact, talking about the end of time. And so I, I wonder what he's getting at here, but I think that might be answered in the next story which would be really weird. Uh, I'll, I'll say that up front. It would be really weird to say there are those standing here who will not taste death, who won't die until they see this happening, and then having this happen about six days later. Um, that would be weird in terms of phraseology, but I think that might be what's going on, and at least that's my interpretation and understanding. So, so again, you are free to interpret this how you will, and you are free to agree or disagree with me because I am not the authority on this, but this is how I understand it. Some here will not die until they see the Son of Man actually coming in his kingdom, his authority. So look at chapter 17, and let's start reading in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. And Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. You know, there's a there's a thing in the Greek, and uh, I'm obviously not a Greek scholar, and I I just know the English, but um, there there is a little thing in the Greek that doesn't quite come across in our Bibles because uh, in, in chapter 17, verse 1, we translate that Jesus took Peter and James and his brother John. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves. In Greek, it reads more like Jesus takes Peter and those others and leads them up on a high mountain. Um, at least I believe that's accurate. And there's just everything in this narrative is told in the past tense, except for this, which is told in the present tense, which should draw a little bit more attention to it. Jesus says, there's some, they won't die until they see me coming with my kingdom. And now Jesus is doing this thing. I think there's maybe an indication that his kingdom and, and the son of man coming in his kingdom, in his authority, maybe that's what they're about to go and do. And again, take that for what you will. But I do think that this is what verse 28 was talking about when Peter, James, and John go up on this mountain and they see Jesus transformed, transfigured. Um, his figure changed somehow. His face suddenly shines, his clothes becoming white and, and glowing or something like that. And uh, other things too, Moses and Elijah show up. Those guys are pretty cool, right? And so the question is, why does this all kind of happen? Why why would Jesus just go on this mountain and suddenly all this start happening? I don't really know. Um, unless it is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. Because what he's doing is he, he goes up on the mountain. He gets transfigured. Then Moses and Elijah appear to him and talk with him. Um, why these two? And that's a question, of course, a lot of people have asked. And there's no real answer. Matthew doesn't give us an answer. He doesn't specify. And so we don't know. But why these two, I'm going to guess it's because they're pretty well known. Right? They're pretty well known historical figures, especially for the Jews, especially on the old law. Moses wrote that whole thing. And I've often heard it suggested maybe Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets because he's like the one of the main prophets. Um, maybe that's true. I don't know. But you see these manifestations of the Old Testament, and Jesus exists before them, right? They're brought in for a bit. They consult with him. They talk with him, and then they disappear, but Jesus is left, right? And what else happens in the story? Peter sees them. Peter says, oh, oh I, should, I should provide for all of you. All of you are holy. All of you are amazing, like, let's build shelters, let's build tabernacles so that you can stay. And while he's saying that, in verse 5, while he's saying all of you is holy, God is saying, no, 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 no. One of these guys is much better than the other two. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they're terrified, but when they next look up, 
It's just Jesus who's there, not Moses nor Elijah. Sure, these three guys are cool. Sure, these three guys have done a lot of work for God over the years and, and over the, the decades and even centuries, but one of them stands out among the three. It's not Moses. It's not Elijah. It's not those guys. It's Jesus. And the disciples are terrified when they hear God speaking, so, so they fall face down. They are terrified. But afterwards, Jesus comes up and he says, hey, it's okay. Get up, don't be afraid, it's fine. And it's just Jesus, and it seems like he's not transfigured anymore. He's just the Jesus that they know. It's just now his authority, now his kingship has been established once more. And now they know it's not just a kingship over, it's not just authority over the wind and the waves, or over the demons, or over the uh, the, the whatever other uh Miracles, that's the word, whatever other miracles he's performed, the feeding of the five and four thousand, the healing of various people. No, now they know it's about authority over the Old Testament. It's about authority over God's old methods of revelation. Jesus said, all the way back in chapter five, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? You've heard that this is how the law was, but here's what the law was actually about. Well, there's a reason he can do that is because Moses and Elijah appear to consult with him, and then they disappear again. Jesus was in the beginning. Moses and Elijah came along for a period, taking cues from Jesus. And Jesus is here at the end, after they have passed away. You know, it's a very, that's a, that's a very, um, it's a big analogy of this section, but I think it's accurate I do believe this actually happened, but it's also just an accurate summary of the generic theme of, of Scripture and, and what is binding and what's not. And so that's the story. The Transfiguration, we've seen this before, probably. You've probably heard people talk about it before. This is one of the more popular stories about Jesus, but there's, there's still some other stuff in here. And hopefully that's been good to think through. Well, before we uh, wrap up this episode, let's talk about some practical things. And yes, I am going to try and do what I said last week, which is I'm going to try to keep this more concise and easier to understand, less rambly, and hopefully that's better for everyone. Well, um, just three quick things here, three things to think about. Um, the first one's in verse 24. Matthew chapter 16, let's go back to 16 and in verse 24, where Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, right? And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. But here, maybe you don't have the greatest commandment, but you have the hardest commandment. And maybe in some ways this is the prerequisite to the greatest commandment. Because what Jesus is saying is deny yourself, right? Put yourself off and, and wait on your desires. Take up your cross, which is a death sentence, and follow him right to that death. Get rid of yourself and be totally selfless. That's how you follow Jesus. If you want to follow him, you become 
selfless. Becoming selfless is the first step to giving God everything. And giving God everything is the first step to becoming selfless. These, these commands, love the Lord your God with everything and take up your cross and follow, these are, these are two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. And so this is the hardest commandment. Get rid of yourself to serve God and to serve other people, ultimately. But it's what we're called to. And it's the job Jesus asks of us. Um, for whatever that's worth, there you go. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That is a lot easier said than done. The second idea that I have is it, it comes from verse 5. Back in chapter 17, it comes from verse 5, where God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, these people, these, these three guys, Peter, James, and John, probably would have listened to Moses and Elijah quite a bit, right? They probably would have, would have known what those people are talking about, and they, they probably would have understood the law. Maybe, maybe not as fully as like the Pharisees would, or at least the Pharisees would claim, but they would have understood it. Um, but, but what God's saying is, hey, that old system that you knew, the stuff that you used to adhere to, that's not as relevant anymore because Moses and Elijah are transitory. They passed away. They're gone at this point, and their laws are on the way out. You need to listen to Jesus. And, of course, you, you see this theme picked up in the rest of the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, when he corrects some of the, the false teachers, teachers who are going into churches and saying, hey, you have to be Jewish before you can be Christian. And Paul says, no, because the old law is gone, and the new law is here. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is here. It's that same point. And, of course, for us, our contemporary literature that— that, that teaches us things. It's not really the old law. We don't live under that anymore. We don't live in that society. Um, but what about, I mean, what, what about preachers? And of course, I say this being a speaker, being someone who's presenting his opinions to you. But what about us? Right? What about the, the modern minds of science or, or whatever? What about the popular speakers? Whatever religion or, or whatever denomination they claim, who are we looking to for our answers? Do we look to people and the stuff that we come up with? And even really learned people, do we look to their opinions and say, oh, this is what this teacher thought about this subject. That's what I'm going to hold. That's what I'm going to align my opinion with. Or do we look to God and do we do our best to look to his word and say, hey, what does his word say? What does this tell us? Maybe we need to listen to Jesus first. And then let other people have their opinions. And let them discuss things. And we can learn from them. But, but Jesus is the foundation. And so even though we don't wrestle as much with the Old Testament being authoritative nowadays... Maybe we have substituted other things. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You listen to him. You don't listen to other stuff. So the question is, do you listen to Jesus or do you listen to 
other sources, whatever they may be. Even as well-intentioned, even as wise as they are, if they're not Jesus, they're not authoritative. And so listen with caution. And the third thing, the third thing is in verse 7, where Jesus comes up and he touches them and he says, don't be afraid, right? After trials, God comforts. And that's a general idea, I think, uh, and I'm just reminded of it here. God puts, God allows these three disciples to go through this trial. In some cases, in, in some ways of thinking, he even puts this trial before them and tests them with it um, to see how they're going to respond. Of course, there's a, there's a really bad way to display that, and I hope I didn't do that. But he does put this before them. He does test them with it to see how they're going to answer. But at the end of the day, God comes back and comforts because that's who God is, right? He will allow you to be t- tested. He will allow you to even be tempted. He will um, test your resolve and check that you're obeying him for the right reasons, that you're listening to the right things, that you're doing the right things, sure. But ultimately, God also always supports his own. And that's a promise that we have confirmed in other places. But I, I see that here as well. Yes, these people are terrified. Yes, they fall face down, and they are entirely terrified. But at the end of the day, Jesus, even, even though God speaking terrified them in verses 5 and 6, God speaking also calms them down in verse 7 when he says, Get up, don't be afraid. It's okay. Because God supports his own. And so if you are one of God's people, we have that assurance that God will comfort, that we can go to him in whatever the situation is, and he'll always be there. So hopefully that's helpful to you. I feel like that was much clearer than it has been in the past, and hopefully you were able to get those ideas better that way. Uh, I'll try to keep doing that in future. So yeah, just a few thoughts from the end of 16 and the start of 17 in Matthew. Familiar story, at least familiar phrases from those stories, but maybe we do need to pay a little bit more attention, even when it's something that we all know so well. Well, so I think that's it. I think that is good enough for that section. A little bit shorter today, and hopefully that's okay. I don't really... Well, I want to talk for the content and not for the time, so if it's just around the general half-hour mark, it's good enough. Um... Yeah, suppose that works. So thanks for listening. Hopefully you learned something and, and saw something, has have something to think about now after that. And hopefully you enjoyed it as well. And whatever the case is, you can let me know if you have comments or questions, agree or disagree, you are free to do either. Um, whatever my interpretation is, is my interpretation. And again, listen to God and not just what I say. Um, that's a warning even from today's message. And so think about that. Think about everything that we've considered and draw your own conclusions from that. Thanks for listening. Hope you've enjoyed, and I'll see you on the next episode of Biblical Breadcrumbs.